0: Back everybody to Conspiranormal.
1: Feels been, great to
0: be back. Yeah, it's been uh it's been a minute. It's been almost well, it actually has been a month since uh, we actually did a proper Conspira normal show other than the update that we put out a couple of weeks
1: ago. I think we're fully recovered from the Strange Realities conference.
0: Yeah, I think we took our time and uh, recovered a little bit. And uh, we're we're gonna be back here for a string of excellent shows to round out in the year starting with the guests that we have dr richard spence who's coming back to conspiracy normal for i think this is the third time congratulations dr spence thank you, you, are thank you.
2: glad
1: to be back
0: You're in the three guest club okay
1: the mystical and number three
0: i um I, I wanted to probably start advertising for these people but um you guys i, I have the great courses primarily due to uh, dr spence and I ran uh, across um, his Crimes of the Century series that's on The Great Courses, which, by the way, if, if you are interested in anything academic, uh, The Great Courses just about has everything on there. And now they have... Uh, they're not paying me for this. I'm paying them. But uh, now they have, I guess, wrapped into something called Wondrium that has the Great Courses and several other things, as well as their own programming on this uh, website. Wondrium has Secrets of the Occult, also with Dr. Spence. And I understand, Dr. Spence, that this actually is Wondrium's own program. It's not actually part of the Great Courses.
2: Well, I'll tell you the way that I understand it, and since I'm not privy to corporate decisions at, at the teaching company... So the the company that runs all of this is called the Teaching Company, and so traditionally they had the Great Courses, which again has these kind of you know these aren't these are taught by people who are generally academic experts in their field. These aren't for credit courses. This is just something you you do because you want to learn it. Uh, but they seem to be transitioning into a kind of broader. You know, I don't know, maybe somebody felt that the great courses was somewhat dated and you needed a you know another name. So Wondrium is the kind of larger label under which the traditional great courses mm-hmm. exist. And then Wondrium puts out some things just strictly under the Wondrium label. But I think as time goes on, the whole thing is going to become Wondrium. So mm-hmm. that's, that's probably the name you would want to search for and remember.
1: And you can add it as a, a channel on your your smart TV, whatever you use, Roku or whatever. Yeah,
0: they have yeah, an app. Yeah. They have an app now. So currently, I have great courses through um, Amazon, which I've had, and uh, I've downloaded Wondrium, which, like I said, it's got a lot of different a lot of different things on there. And there's like several. There's like another one section on there that's like Kino Labore. I guess it's like, you know, films from like the early 20th century. So they got like Battlestar yeah, Potemkin yeah. on there and uh, they've got the complete Metropolis and like uh, Nosferatu, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So you can go back and watch a lot of these older films. I'm just looking through this thing, you know, with this free trial so I can watch the uh, Secrets of the Occult and I'm just like, this is amazing. I mean, there's just so much on here and it's definitely worth mm you know, the $15 a month or whatever. But I think there's like some tiers that you can you can use, but it's it's pretty incredible. There's even like a channel there that's like debates. The only thing that I've watched so far is your thing, but like I'm going to be watching a lot of stuff on
2: there. So yeah, I, I already know that already. There's oodles and oodles of, of stuff. <laughs> there is. Whatever yeah, you're interested in, you'll find it.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's even like home maintenance stuff on there. Like it's
2: crazy. <laughs> Ballroom dancing.
0: Yeah. Ballroom dancing. Yes, you're right. Yes, yes. That is, there is ballroom dancing on there. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, primarily cries of the century. I want to talk a little bit about some of the secrets of the occult stuff too. Um, I was particularly stricken by three episodes of the cries of the century. And these were actually together in order. It was like the Zodiac Killer, Charles Manson, Son of Sam. And some of the interesting connections between the three, and that's kind of what I want to talk about um, tonight. Is that? But I want to talk about a couple of other one other case as well. Um,
1: really, an overarching theme of occult murder, in the, yes, yeah, yeah, in our exactly. current fascination yeah. by occult right. murder, that's
2: that's a good way to put it, I suppose. Yeah, it always creeps in there somehow or another. It does. So. It does. Um, I guess that's that's you know in the in the secrets of the occult series, you know again occult being a a thing which in some ways is tricky to define um, means slightly different things to different people. So I decided to stick with a simple version that it means hidden. It means a kind of hidden reality, and but it tends to be it tends to permeate everything if you know what to look for. And this is, you know, where people think that, you know, occultism is just a lot of rogue cultists and devil worship. Uh, it's so much more than that. I mean, it's, it's a um, among other things, it's just it, one of it is it's a whole, in many ways, it's a kind of basic philosophy as to how reality works, which has some really mm-hmm. interesting aspects of that. Um, but you do find it in in crime quite a bit. I mean, there's he's always kind of lurking around the corner like a little imp.
0: So I'm curious about just some of like the facts of like the, the zodiac killer case and some of those some of those connections between these three, um, that these three are, are connected in, a, in an odd way.
2: Well, we're talking about Manson, the Zodiac, and Son of Sam. Um, well, if you look at Son of Sam and Zodiac, the obvious connection again, the one which is pretty much up front, is the whole idea of an occult connection. Because the Zodiac, whoever that person was, claimed, you know, their essential claim is, why am I committing these murders? Well, I'm collecting slaves for the afterlife. Now, whether you want to take that statement seriously or not, that's what he said. That's what he, mm-hmm. what he was like. So that certainly gives some kind of occult underpinning. That's, that's what this whole thing is about. I'm killing people in order to collect slaves for the afterlife. So all of these things are kind of ritualistic killings. David Berkowitz, you know, depending upon the day of the week and phase of the moon and different things, would he? We know. I mean, this is a guy who said he was getting uh, a demon talking to him through his neighbor's dog, and that furthermore, his neighbors and other people around him were all part of a nationwide ritual murder cult. That's one of the things has been fairly consistent about Berkowitz. Is that yeah? I, I, he says he's not trying to say he didn't commit murder.
1: Right. right. He's
2: basically saying that. I was part of a larger group that these were uh, these were cult activities. These again, these weren't sort of random killings, and it wasn't just one guy going out and shooting couples. These were all carefully staged. So the connection, based upon the words coming out of the mouths of the of the killers themselves, those both caught like Berkowitz and unknown like Zodiac, is that the purposes of this have to do with occult aims. Manson, I think you can also fit in, I mean, you know, Manson was spinning a whole sort of spirit, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. he was declaring himself to be both devil and Christ. And Now, he was running some kind of of deal uh, quite successfully for a time and, you know, selling drugs to motorcycle gangs called Satans slaves I don't know why they picked that particular <laughs> name but you know that just see these little things sort of come up and yeah. again, again and again the challenge in all three of those cases Manson zodiac and son of Sam was is there really anything new to say about these I mean all of these those cases have been right it's just gone over continuously and they are in up team different theories so the one thing I didn't want to do is get drug in and trying to assess every single theory that someone has come up as to who the zodiac was because to varying degrees they all make sense the other hand they don't lead anywhere okay <laughs> uh, your prime suspect dies or someone's you know someone's DNA doesn't match that that you have and um, so what I tried to do in the case of Zodiac was to simply focus on that question, okay? It is, is this an occult crime? Is, is it something motivated by, you know, not necessarily occult forces? You don't have to believe in the reality of occult forces to believe that people are motivated by them. What was the inspiration uh, and again, when you know the killer says, I'm, "I'm I'm collecting souls as slaves in the afterlife," then, well, what did he mean by that? And if we look at the case further, do we see other occult elements in it? Things suggesting of a, a suggestive of a kind of specific ritual format, and you do see some of that. Um, the the whole thing that the Zodiac has with the the positioning, the the, the sites of the killings are not randomly chosen any Mm -hmm. more than the victims are randomly chosen. And anytime you begin to do things, one of the things I, points I try to make in Secrets of the Occult is that a ritual is simply a series of actions performed in a specific order. Now, once you begin to think about that, you'll realize that every play and every movie you've ever seen, every symphony you've ever listened to is, is a ritual because it is a series of actions performed in a specific order and usually designed to evoke some kind of response. Anybody who makes a movie, you know, you know if you're making a movie called Satan's Cheerleaders, you know, you're trying to evoke some sort of response out of people, scare them and titulate them, I suppose. Uh, nobody's ever composed a piece of music that wasn't supposed to get a response from people in that way.
1: And music so, and movies are often under the microscope of these synchromistic types trying to uh, ascertain their real hidden agendas and meanings. And...
2: Well, you know, motion pictures are probably one of the greatest boons to occultism or the concept of ritual activity that's ever come in because you can now you can make things look real mm-hmm. the, the idea of i mean what, what a film does is that it, it creates a completely alternate reality because what you've got here i mean you know to go over the obvious you've got actors who are reading lines written by a writer you've got a director you know, everything you see is a fantasy. it's not real but it looks real And the most important thing is that they do it enough so that you buy it is real. Because if you're watching, you know, you're watching an action movie with Liam Neeson, let's say, going around killing people, which is pretty much what his career has become quite effectively. But if you're watching this, if if you're if you're thinking the whole time is that, well, this is an actor and this is a set and these are other actors and these, you know, these are squibs going off. No one's actually being harmed. You wouldn't enjoy the movie, would you? You know, you'd be watching it as a kind of technical exercise, but you're drawn into that by the convincing performances, the ability of actors to portray hopefully realistic characters saying fairly realistic things. That's That's why in something like often a kind of you know what we dismiss as a cult movie or a a kind of silly movie, you, you, you watch them because you you you're sort of reveling in their irreality in some mm-hmm. way. Right. Ed Wood's Plan Nine from Outer Space. All right, <laughs> you're not you're not taking anything seriously, which is why you're in on the joke while you're watching it. But another film, no, you buy into it. You are enchanted, which is sort of what the filmmaker set out to do. So you've got. So in the case of, you know, getting back to to the Zodiac, I think the Zodiac is is a fairly obvious occult angle. So that's what I was going to look at. And we're not going to get it. And the other thing I concentrated on was just what are called the canonical five murders. Because you claimed 44 victims and you might connect this. But, okay, we're not going to go there. We're just going to look at the ones that we all agree that this person did. And then look through the different elements he, he seems to have an interesting thing about you know the, the position there's a whole business about you using mount diablo mount mm-hmm, devil man. what else there it is again why right. Mount? Di- is well the, the obvious reason really for mount diablo is that it's the basis for the whole grid system in the west coast in california okay that, that that's what you set up as the kind of why that place i don't know somebody did it but that's essentially how you've you know, set out the whole sort of division of California into sections and uh, the the sort of makeup of uh, the lay of the land in that regard, which to me indicates that he knew that. That's not common knowledge among them. So he knew something about surveying and how land, the basis of the the nodal survey point, that was the word I was groping for, Mm -hmm. for, Mm -hmm. for California. Uh, the other thing he seemed to be pretty cut. You know, the one thing I ran across in that episode that I thought was that really surprised me, even though I've seen it before, is that at one point he sends this, I think it's a Halloween card to a reporter. and it's got this little you know little the cross, which is drawn dividing things into four quadrants. And, you know, one is the various forms of, you know, how I've killed people, you know, by gun, by knife, uh, by rope, by fire. And we only know that he's killed people by gun and knife. So is he also claiming that he's strangled people or set fires and doing some? But the thing is, is that all of this comes from a Tim Holt comic. This Western comic in the 19th, you find out that where the Zodiac, where someone got the whole idea for this from was the cover of a Western Tim Holt comic. Or I think the early 1950s, where you've got a whole wheel of death with all of the different ways in which which people can die. But there's, there's a so is he a comic collector? Should you have been looking at comic shops the whole time uh, as to what was going on? Someone awesome. who would have acquaintance with those, someone who also seemed to have a kind of passing acquaintance with with codes. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of which were fairly easy to decipher, other ones not so. But that's not just kind of an amateur sitting down and doing that on their own. They had sense of how to some senses of how to put ciphers together. So I don't know, I guess if you could uh, find a huge database that could tell you, hmm, see, who knows about the California land survey system and is a comic book aficionado uh, who also knows something about codes and ciphers, well, then you got your person, maybe. Uh, the other possibility, which I wouldn't rule out, is that you're not talking about one person.
0: I've always kind of felt like it was two different guys.
1: And that's a common thread through these three that we're talking about Uh, these three different cases
0: i've definitely felt that way because i think in the in the suspect list there's always been some confusion and i always felt like it could have been there's i think there's two main suspects if i'm not from and i'm thinking that it could have been both of these guys
2: yeah the guy that comes up most often is arthur lee allen right that was one of the people but um I think he was the one, he's died, but they did a DNA test and said, you know, of, of what they think's the, you know, the, or the, uh, even some of the other evidence they had that he didn't fit, you know, everything else about him seemed to fit, you know, certainly fit the kind of social misfit, um, which is usually what you tend to think you're looking for, right? Isn't that the general idea that someone who's a serial killer is going to be weird and that's yeah, going to yeah. be obvious? Except, you know, then you get to think, I don't know, always seemed like a perfectly normal guy to me. <laughs> he was such a nice boy. He was, he was such a nice guy, you know. He was, um, and, you know, if they, basically, if they fall into what we generally yep. define as sociopaths or psychopaths, they should be a nice guy. Good point. One of, the, one of the main things that those people generally have going for them is that they're charming. They're not scary. So that was, you know, it's the Ted Bundy factor, which is another case entirely. But, you know, Ted Bundy was a very successful con man. He was charming. That's how he got those women to go with him. And that's what, that's what gave him the, uh, the sort of power that he had. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, if you go to, if you look at David Berkowitz, David Berkowitz is, you know, mostly claiming that he is part of a group, part of a cult which carries out ritual murders. So, if there is, if you want to assume that there is a a, a connection, which I think writers like, uh, particularly Maury Terry, has, uh, has you know, basically believes that there is all this this kind of. You know, sometimes he calls it the Four Pi movement. Sometimes it's the hand of death, but there's some sort of nationwide satanic murder cult. And that that's what, certainly in the case of Zodiac and Son of Sam, that they're simply the East and West Coast versions of that. So if you buy into that, then it would be, you're basically saying that Zodiac is more than one person. It is a group which was presenting itself as a single individual? Well, the reality is you don't really have a lot of information. So, again, if you're looking at the Zodiac, you don't even have a face or a name to put to it. In In the, in the Berkowitz case, you, you've got a person you can identify. I mean, if nothing else, he admits he was involved in, that he was a perpetrator in some of the killings and that he was involved as a participant in the rest of them but in the case of the zodiac you don't really you know other than that one sort of drawing that you have of what he looked like which looks like a lot of people everyone and no one pretty much at the same sort of time you you can't put a name or face to that one which i think is what is the kind of fascination but you know you you've got you know who the victims are you know when and where they occurred uh, one of the things you know, one of the things you often look for in ritual activities is they're often connected to things like phases of the moon. And so, is was there anything consistent in terms of lunar cycles and the zodiac killings? Not really. Um, most of them, you know, they occurred at night. There were couples. Um, so, which brings the kind of you know, they took place generally at lovers' lanes or at ice, you know, or couples that sort of isolated themselves. Uh, they use both guns and knives, something which was seemed to be part of the of the zodiac's process, and often near a body of water. That's the other thing that you find. So, and again, that's that's why they're not sort of chosen randomly, but. What exactly did that mean to the Zodiac? Why, why were those particular things significant? Why couples? Why at night? Why near bodies of water? And all of that works except for the Paul Stein killing, who's the cab driver that Zodiac kills. a completely different, which doesn't follow that pattern at all. Downtown San Francisco. It's not out of the boonies somewhere, you know, near a lovers' lane, near a lake at night. Doesn't involve a couple. Yeah, it looks like uh, a more random urban killing. Somebody kills a cab driver. What? A dispute over money? Rob him? Also, is carried out in front of witnesses. Zodiac had been pretty careful before, not in this. So it just doesn't fit it at all. I mean. I think as I note, if the Zodiac hadn't taken part of Stein's bloody shirt and actually sent it to, to police and authorities to prove that he was involved in it, there'd be no reason to connect him to it. It doesn't fit his MO. So why was that killing so distinct from the others? Um, and it, you know, my guess in that is because it wasn't it wasn't planned. It's one of those things that just sort of happened for some reason. Uh, and the other thing about that is that, as far as we can tell, as far as you can really sort of prove, the Zodiac doesn't he boasts a lot of killings after that. But either he got a lot more careful, or he got scared and he quit. There was the
0: one at Stanford University.
2: Are uh, you talking about the woman the, in the
0: chapel? A lot of people attributed that to Zodiac, but I think that they they know that I think that that was the security guard. But I yeah, can't think they, that...
2: I think that well, security guard, janitor, caretaker. Yeah, they they apparently pinned it on him.
0: Yeah, and he he killed himself before they when they were serving the warrant, which you, you actually can see in that um, documentary that that was put out uh, about a year or so ago about the Maury Terry stuff. Yeah, um, which that's connected to the son of Sam, usually connected to the son of Sam stuff too, even though it happens like a continent away. But like I can remember that you know uh, Walter Bosley wrote about that in one of the Empire of the Wheel books. Yeah, um, we're connecting that to to Zodiac, but I, I I can't really remember why that that was connected to Zodiac, other than it was some weird kind of ritual killing, and not exactly his MO either, really.
2: No, the other one he's been connected to is early on. Supposedly his first victim was what was it, Sherry Joe Bates, who was yeah. killed at what a UC Riverside or no. San Bernardino killed in the college campus.
0: That's the one I'm thinking
2: of actually. That's yeah. probably, there've been others, there are a couple of killings, uh, you know, where I used to live in Santa Barbara. Um, there was a couple that was killed near Gaviota, which is a little isolated coastal town, sort of, uh, to the west or north of Santa Barbara, depending on how you want to believe highway 101 runs. Um, there were a couple of people in closer to home and around UCSB campus or, or there was an ax murder on the beach in Isla Vista. And that was other people attributed. but that, that again, I think was just the idea that we, we know there's this killer out there and he seems to target couples. Yeah, so you yeah. got a dead couple. Well, it must be the same person. Well, not necessarily. And I think you can, you got something going on here. One, Zodiac is continually claiming more victims. He's always sort of ahead of anything that's been found, and that that number continually increases. So is that... We'll we'll say him. We don't really know, but, you know, I'd give you a 99.9% chance that any way you look at probably is a male, right? I don't want to leave women out of this, okay? I'm not saying that... I'm just saying that, you know, overall... Less likely to be serial killers. Yeah. Much, much less likely than you have. But you know, the facts are, are relatively few. They're subject to a lot of different interpretation. And they bear, a, in some cases, a greater or lesser resemblance to other killings of that kind. I mean, something else I think I noted in that episode is that if you really look around, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 60s and early 70s, there are a lot of murders going on. In particular, this is the unpleasant part of it. There are a lot of young women who disappear mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whose skeletal remains are found much later. There was a dozen in, in Marin County and elsewhere. Very often, you don't know who these people are. Um, you don't know exactly when they were killed or how they were killed. We know that these killings take place in an area where Zodiac and other serial killers were active. So you have no idea what's really going on. Uh just, in other words, just because somebody shows up dead in an area where the Zodiac killings took place doesn't mean it was the Zodiac. There were uh, there were more. There was more going on than that.
0: I don't know if it's ever going to really be be solved at this point. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen, but the the son of Sam one, um, the Mari Terry theory, that seems pretty solid. I think the problem with Terry became when he started putting all this kind of more satanic panic type of um, material into his work. I mean, it makes sense that there was more than that. There was more than one person, especially with what happens afterwards with a couple of the guys that he was associated. Berkowitz was associated with start to die under these kind of weird mysterious circumstances
2: yeah the uh we're we thinking of here i'm spacing on the name uh the brothers yeah wheat yeah, um, yeah. and um you know even to the fact that the, the Wheat's sister <laughs> works as a dispatcher yeah. in the yeah. in the yonkers police department which is and actually is a dispatcher who takes the police about uh, bergowitz's arrest that's kind of odd um yeah, I think if you put everything together with Berkowitz, you know, you've got to keep in mind that he's changes his story. You know, first first the devil made me do it, then the devil didn't, then the devil made me do it again. And this is, you know, this is one of those things that is not that unusual to run across. Someone confesses, then they repudiate the confession, then they go, Oh, well, the confession I gave you before is is basically correct. And you know, you're left with this situation that, well, they lied or misrepresented themselves in one of these cases. You can't both do it and not do it. So which is it? So which of those does do you want to believe in that case? Uh, by the preponderance of what was has said, by you know, even some of the oddities in, in terms of the killings, I would... Without saying in any way that I absolutely believe it or prove it, I would lean towards the side that yes, there is more going on in the Son of Sand killings than just David Berkowitz. I'm not sure how much more, but he's not the only person who is is a part of that. You know, there's another case, another thing within the crimes of the century that comes in. Actually, a case that I think fits. Better than Manson fits into this, as better known as Manson is, fits in with both Zodiac and Son of Sam, is the case in Italy, the monster of Florence. Another one of these cases, which is unsolved, which you've got umpteen different suspects, you actually have people who were convicted of it at one point in time, under very dubious circumstances. Um... I tell you, one thing I basically learned in, in researching that case is that don't get arrested for murder in Italy. Uh, it's you know, not a, Amanda Knox found that yeah, out as uh, well. Uh, I remember that. Very different proceeding. Part of it is being the capacity to be tried for the same crime again and again, if that's the circumstances, or, or to be retried with other things thrown into it. Uh, but beyond the perils of, of Italian uh, jurisprudence in that case, uh, the Monster of Florence was, again, something that went on really through the 70s into the 80s. Uh, couples, okay, like the Zodiac, couples are the focus of this. Ambushed, killed, shot to death, basically using the same gun, which you know, turns up a different... There's a lot of things there to suggest it's, it was it's somehow all connected to this particular sardinian sort of crime family yet you can't really tell how uh it's it's a really at the lot i think that's the one that's the most puzzling because it went on the longest period of time and it does bear at least superficially a lot of resemblance. It, it's sort of the Italian version of Zodiac, without anybody necessarily claiming to be the Zodiac.
0: Yeah, because I think the first one was like 1968, and I think the last one was like then the 90s, or maybe 90,
2: 1991
0: or 1994.
2: <sighs> that was the late 80s, th- but I mean, it was, it, it, was it, a it, long period of time. Very long period of time, and there there were gaps. You know, the, the murders stopped for a while, and then, then they resume, but. Uh, you know, it really made going out, and um, <laughs> the thing that was the basis of it was that, uh, particularly in that period in, in Italy, uh, a lot of young people tended to live at home. And therefore, <laughs> essentially, if they wanted to have sex, you went out and had sex in the car out in the countryside somewhere. So a lot of that was tended to be going on in the foothills outside Florence. Uh, so there were lots of sort of lovers' lanes where that that would take place. Again, very you know, zodiac basically knew where the lovers' lanes were, you know, uh, and in a couple of cases that that's apparently what he waited to do, and until they were in the act sufficiently distracted, and then and then would attack. And you find the same sort of thing in the in the Florence killer, but. Why? And, the, and again, there were efforts there later by Italian authorities to connect this with a kind of satanic murder cult, where interesting things came up. People who were accused, nothing could be proved. Uh, in some cases, the evidence seemed to be pretty iffy. Um, but it's—I'm not sure
0: you can totally dismiss it either the very first case, the very first shooting, just really kind of seemed cut and dry. Like, it was this woman that was with her, I guess, her lover, and the uh, there was the little boy in the back seat. Yeah. And the little boy, you know, the, the, the woman and the man are shot. The little boy is taken somewhere to a house, left there, and it seemed that this was obviously like some kind of like love triangle gone wrong or this was the husband that did it but they could never quite pin it on the husband and then like that seemed pretty cut and dry but then a few years later you start getting these other murders that start taking place and they get progressively more brutal and and there was an interesting theory as to somehow that that first case set somebody off on a dark path somehow I thought that was an interesting
2: theory yeah it's um, there's essentially a clan of people around there they're not from from Florence but they're from Sardinia which apparently in Italy is considered even more than Sicily to be a kind of backward area Um, whether that's true or not that was the perception at the time and it was yeah you know, the, the first case is you know you basically got this woman and her boyfriend um who are you know parked basically having sex in the front seat while her son who they would earlier taken to a movie is, is sitting in the back and then the kid you know, is taken what is it like three miles away someone yeah, carries something
0: like that yeah he
2: describes you know if he changes the kid changes his story of course you know first there's a there's a person who there was there was a man. He even identifies some of the people who were there, who were some of his, you know, other parts of this family. Again, it, it pretty much looks like a murder, uh, committed to defend family honor. That that's what it would tend to smack of because uh, the woman had been just you know. Dishonoring the family by bestowing her honors freely, you know, her favors freely on other individuals—however you want to phrase that—and and so they killed her and the guy she was with, and of course they took care of the kid because he was part. Yeah, that sort of fits. See, that's that's simple. But then they just go on and on, and it's this targeting. And but the the, the greatest attention and the greatest violence is always directed towards the females, and they start you know removing their uteruses and you know. It gets bad, yeah. It gets yeah, really bad. It, it, it gets uh, increasingly bloody, uh, and and things that that aren't connected. You know, you can't possibly connect that you're, you know, and, and the victims are completely unrelated to each other. Some of them are, you know, foreign tourists who were there who would never set foot in that area.
0: Before. Yeah, and there was the one the German, the two guys.
2: Yes, and then they
0: had long hair, so they thought that the killer just thought that was a
2: woman and. Yeah, so they end up killing a couple of German gay guys, Um, and and also the the killings are the killings are with a pistol, uh, kind of twenty two, the kind of gun that was commonly used, basically, you know, shoot varmints, Uh, and then the mutilations would would take place later. But uh, so that's one of the theories is that you know someone who was involved in the first killing, which was a pretty simple, you know, honor killing. Something set off, you know, some switch was thrown in their brain and then they wanted to do this over and over again. That makes a good story, but that's all it is. Okay, you're guessing about the motivations of somebody you don't know. Like the Zodiac, my suspicion is that there's not one killer. That these that these are killings very similar to each other, which the people involved in, you know, that there's some sort of group which is involved there's a group dynamic that we don't understand there you go. is there a
1: occult <laughs> dimension to this idea of killing lovers engaged in these acts and lovers lanes also
2: well okay that gets you into the sort of realm of sex magic yeah so uh the, the principle of what's often called sex magic which always sounds much you know like more exciting than it actually is <laughs> that, the sexual act arouses great, you know, it arouses people, you know, gets them excited. It it creates energy. And so one of the things in sort of ritual sex magic is that you engage in coitus in order to create this energy. And then at the same time have this kind of Zen-like detached fascination on some object you want to occur. So one of the concepts you know, what occult rituals are often trying to do is they're trying to put energy into something or take energy out of it. You're trying to energize things to alter reality, to bend events in a way that you want to do by putting energy into or out mm-hmm. of systems. So you can engage in sex magic yourself, oh. you know, like Aleister Crowley or others, um, which means that, you know, you got to cut. I don't know this... This calls for certain mental gymnastics because you have to do one thing while thinking about something else. Try that. So um, that's, that's tricky in and of itself. So it's, it's, but in the other way, you can simply try to capture that energy by killing people who are involved in it, at, possibly at the point of orgasm. That would be the obvious time. That's when you would kill them because all of this energy would be released. Now, by saying that, do I believe that actually you can, that that that's real? I don't know, but people believe it is. And if you end up, you know, killing someone because that's what you believe, then you've sort of created a reality in that regard. Um, My suspicion is that from an occult angle, that's why couples are being chosen. And particularly couples who are either involved or likely to become involved who have just been involved in sexual activity. That seems to be a common denominator, particularly in Zodiac and Monster of Florence. Uh, you know, Son of Sam as well. You know, they It wasn't exclusively couples. Uh, it was young women for the most part. But then there, the, you know, Young women are the sort of sexual avatars. They're the objects of desire. Which, you know, uh, a really unpleasant side of this is that that's why so much violence tends to be directed towards them. And it's, you know, I, it's one of those things I've, without being able to participate in, I, I understand why a lot of women are afraid. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I think as it was put to me, you know, you you generally exist in a world where on average, and not always, you know, thanks to human sexual dimorphism, women are smaller um in on average. And you know, you, you live in a world in which these, you know, creatures like you but also much bigger and stronger and generally physically capable of overwhelming you often take a very intense interest in you and that interest can be kind and loving and romantic as it usually is or it can become twisted and murderous um but it's uh, yeah and that's just again if you look at these general if you look at the general basis of sex crimes it's women being killed by men overwhelmingly so something's going on there Mm
1: -hmm. Dark, dark stuff. Something
0: I was thinking of, too, you you mentioned the satanic cold angle that kind of came up in the Italian press. Um, I watched this other thing called um, Vatican Girl, and this is a four-part documentary about this case that happened, a girl that went missing. She actually lived in Vatican City. Um, This was in 1980 three i want to say that this happened and there was all this kind of weird stuff around it that had to do with the vatican about i mean it 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 goes into basically everything but there was also a lot of that same kind of thing um satanic priests this type of stuff that was that was included in that And there was even one guy that confessed to being a part of it. And they found out that he wasn't. It wasted a huge amount of time. The press just hopped all over this. And the Amanda Knox thing was the same way. You know, like the press just really hopped on it. Um, It seems like the sensationalism. I mean, like, like you can almost say like some of these European countries, like we think our sensationalism is bad here. Like they're 10 times worse. And it seems like a lot of that stuff really muddies these cases to where like the police just cannot get any leeway because there's just so much just sensational bullshit that's involved
2: with all. Well, yeah, there you go. I think there's a good term: sensational bullshit. Um, You know, the press. I'm trying to dump on dump on the uh, the fourth estate in this case, but yeah, the reality (laughs) is, is it's you want to sell newspapers. Yeah and uh you know what sells newspapers is is something which is scandalous and, and salacious and you know the more threatening that you can make it so you know if you've got a sex murder well that's one thing you got a satanic sex murder well okay <laughs> that's an even bigger story uh yeah i mean sometimes the press can be helpful in the investigation of these things but usually no uh usually it often you know particularly if they begin to focus on one particular person as the culprit in this case
1: um, well like with zodiac and other other terrorists in history they've served as a mouthpiece for the
2: yes see the zodiac was quite savvy about that It was okay well I I'll, I'll send this to you this is the way that I'll communicate through the world uh, one thing you got you know if the journalist is anxious for the story they're not they're not going to pass it up and you can begin to. The one thing that I sense about the Zodiac case, particularly because the Zodiac was was talky, he was communicative. Uh, Monster of Florence, much less so. You know, you, that doesn't have much of a voice. Is that the Zodiac? To me, it was was manipulating this whole sort of media circus. Uh, they were throwing out all you know, everything from threats. You know, one of the things they were going to blow up a school bus, bus full of children, which never happens, which is a good thing. Um, and part of it, I think, was—I mean, was it was that really a plan that they had that just didn't materialize? And, and I'm pretty sure you can say that it didn't materialize because had someone blown up a school bus full of children, we'd know about it. So that yeah, wasn't exactly. sort of random murder that could have happened disguised as something else. Pretty obvious. Uh, or was it just an unnerving threat? You know, the same way of continually claiming more victims. Oh, now I have 14 or I've got 30 or I've got 44, you know. You don't have to provide any kind of evidence for that. Uh, the degree to which Zodek is just sort of messing with the collective psyche. Uh, and you're able to do that. Know that you, you, you know, you've you proved, you know, you can connect, you've murdered people. You know, you're a real serial killer. But now you can sort of manipulate this, this whole story. And the other thing, the thing that's most unnerving about the zodiac, of course, is that they're never caught or identified. They just quit. Maybe. You're not even terribly sure about that either.
0: Unless it was Ted Kaczynski.
2: Well, unless it was Ted Kaczynski, although, you know, Ted Kaczynski, bless his pee-pick and bomb-making a little heart, you know, <laughs> made, blew up people with homemade bombs. I mean, that. unless he completely changed what it was that he was doing, uh, it can be just about anybody, but personally, I think that's a reach.
0: Yeah, there's there's also um, Steve Hodel. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's um yeah he's he's a writer. He believed that his dad pretty compelling. He makes a pretty compelling case that his dad might have actually been the murderer behind the Black Dahlia case. But then he just kind of derails it when he also says, "Well, he was also the Zodiac killer."
2: Yeah, and I don't really get that. I don't really get that connection at all. Uh, there's also this guy I mentioned, Philip uh, named with Bevelacqua, who's an American military, former military veteran who then retires in, or, or actually moves to a position, uh, I think, with U.S. military cemeteries around. You know, it, it, he'd been in the Bay Area during the Zodiac, and then he shows up in Florence the time that most of those are, murders are taking place so he's been suggested as being both but that's the tie-in that it's you know the, that the zodiac moved to italy yeah and on the surface that there's some evidence to suggest that um i'm not sure it holds up to greater scrutiny but i think in all of these cases as much as they've been studied there are obviously aspects that we're missing, and it's more than just missing the name of the killer in some cases, it's really understanding what the motivation is. I mean, even if we assume that there is some sort of, you know, some sort of group which is carrying out ritual murders, it still leaves the perfect, exactly why? What is it that they're attempting to do? What are you going to all of this effort for? Yeah. So if you're trying to use these rituals to channel energy to alter reality in some way, what way? Beyond what you're actually doing, what the hell do you think you're doing?
1: Right. That's a question for an occultist.
2: Yeah. And that, <laughs> but then you can get. There, there can be so many different
1: reasons for it I want to uh get into Manson a little bit and I guess to segue into that the occult elements in Manson really have more to do with his powers of the ideas of his powers of mind control over his little band of followers um but then also there's a lot of interesting things as far as he was very uh is a very avid student had a lot of time to learn some of these mystical systems, including Scientology, and you mm-hmm. touch on that.
2: Well, if you look at Charles Manson, okay, uh, the main thing that stands out to me is you got a guy who's a who's a career criminal, for the most part, whose early career included being a pimp. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's he wasn't a very successful pimp, but that's. That was something that he learned. about. I mean, look, he, he spent a lot of time in the unofficial university of the American underclass prison. Okay, okay, too poor to go to college, go to prison. You can learn all kinds of things there. So learn how to play the guitar, get into Scientology, Satanism, whatever else is vermin around the joint during that period of time. But that's where eventually the idea he became a pimp, which is really <laughs> a way of what psychologically manipulating women. To get them to do what you want. Well, if you look later at his family, he's still basically doing the same thing. Manson is a pimp. Most of his followers are female. They are young girls who fall under his thrall. And one of the things he uses them for is, you know, to give free sex to bikers. Or anybody else he wants them to. That's a pimp. Right? Um... You know, it's to put in the simplest term, one of the things that Manson supposedly did in sort of training his girls was the strip and suck command. Okay. Well, they, you know, they would then begin to deliver oral sex to bikers or whoever else was there. And I don't know, you know, that's being a pretty successful pimp. So much of what he's doing is just he's a pimp hand. And that comes into a process of, of psychological domination of people. And in the case of Manson, also look at it, this is a guy who's not physically imposing. Now, Charlie Manson is a a small guy. And which, interesting enough, is arguably one of the things that made him, he's less physically threatening to women. He's more their size. He doesn't really pose a physical threat, which some argument then... Makes in some, in particularly in in some cases of some women or others, then more sort of psychologically susceptible to them. Okay, this guy isn't much of a physical threat. Therefore, you're not paying attention to the way in which he's sort of manipulating you. Otherwise, but yeah, yeah, he could get a you know a lot of impressionable young women. Get them to do, give them some sort of sense of family or that's what he called the whole thing but you know, if you look into the world of cults that's got to be one of the most overworked terms ever family everybody has a family <laughs> it's this family because everybody uh, it, it, it's the same it's the same con being used again and again and again so He's a professional criminal. He has a background in pimping. He gives, essentially just expands that. The other thing they're involved in is everything from auto theft to drug dealing. It's, it's all connected to, to criminal activity. What really makes that surprising is the way which he gets away with it for such a long period of time. Because the other thing that seems pretty obvious to me is that Charlie Manson, by the time he was set up in L.A., is somebody's informant. Because he's got a get-out-of-jail-free card. In fact, he doesn't even go to jail. Even the, it's it's like when the, the place, you know, before the the, the uh, murders are pinned on them, you know, the L.A. police, I mean, the, the L.A. County sheriffs another sort of raid spawn ranch going... You've got stolen cars that are found. Manson's got mm-hmm. stolen credit cards on him. We won't even mention the number of underage females mm-hmm. that are around this place and runaways.
1: And he's on probation through all he's this. on
2: probation. Um, in most circumstances, he would be on his way back to lock up that quickly. But he's not. Every one of these always sort of, oh, well, it's a misdated warrant, so we'll just forget about all of this stuff. You know, when he, when he gets out of prison, he gets out of, you know, he's supposed to stay in L.A. County. He's parole in L.A. County. Does he stay there? No. He goes to the Bay Area. Three weeks later, he wanders into the parole office there, where, again, he should have been put on a bus back to Terminal Island because he had violated his parole. And, you know, other people just don't get away with it. But, no, uh, it's, you know, it's okay. You can just, we'll transfer it up here and... And we'll assign you to another parole officer who pretty soon is now only supervising one parolee and that's Charlie Manson. And much of this, much of the mystery about Manson will be explained if you knew the whole relationship between he and his parole officer, then Roger Smith, who simultaneously is a, a graduate student in criminal psychology at UC Berkeley Working as a parole officer, also connected with the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, where they're doing studies on know, uh, disassociated young people and drug use, which Manson is pretty clearly a guinea pig. And then he moves down to L.A. No real problem there. Seems to be. Tra- it, I, I can't even, it's pretty obvious who the guy he's, who's, who's, come, who's takes over as his control. Mm hmm. And he basically goes from Smith's hands over to a guy named Reeve Whitson. And I have to admit that Reeve Whitson is a name that I had heard before I ever ran across it in uh, in the, the chaos book. Um, uh, and which is, you know, Reeve Whitson is CIA. He, he later ends up in Central America, you know, handling contra drug shipments he's 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 company from beginning to end and he probably was when he's in la and you find reeve whitson all around the manson case advising bubiosi why is he a lawyer no does he have any connection to la county no but he's there he's at the prosecutor's side continually giving him advice about something whitson is also pretty convincingly was at the murder scene before the police got there how did that happen so weird so So, i think the manson case while there are there are occult elements in in manson's sort of mental abilities which also by the way pretty clearly include hypnotism Mm -hmm. which is poorly understood and often dismissed but fairly commonplace you know, Another way that one person gets other people to do what they want them to do, sometimes without them being aware of it. But it's basically connected to uh, drug dealing, sex dealing, uh, prostitution, drugs, other activities, especially among the Hollywood. And notice who Manson associates with. He associates with people in the music industry and the film industry. Much more closely than most of those people ever wanted to let on. But he is part, he's sort up on the fringes of that color, because what he's doing is he's supplying drugs and girls to these people for, for any number of purposes. And, and he's got cover. He's being protected because he's informing on the people that he's dealing with. The
0: Biancas get overlooked. You make that point in that episode that they get often overlooked, but yeah. there's the idea that they owed some money to somebody and that they may not have been well, I don't think Sharon Tate was was a random target either, but the La Biancas may may have been. That may have been like a hit squad type of thing.
2: Could have been a hit. My my suspicion, I was investigating, is that there's some connection between the La Biancas and one or more people who are at Cielo Drive, the, the, the Sharon Tate group. There's some connection between them, which has never been clearly visible. And that connection could run through, it could run through, is um, it Beverly La, Bianca run it? A high-end dress shop. She ran this thing, you know, Carousel Boutique, I think it was called. And she sold you know, dress, you know, sort of fashionable, you know, late 60s, uh, stylish hippie dresses, um, as one description put it, to, to well-heeled young women. I mean, people, I don't know that anybody has ever demonstrated that Sharon Tate or Abigail Folger were her customers, but they might have known people who were. There's some kind of connection there. Um, Lena Leobionca had been embezzling from his family business for years, that had recently been re- revealed. He needed money, okay? He was in debt. His wife, who had become much wealthier than he was, wouldn't... Okay, one of two things happened. The guy's in debt. His wife is now essentially a millionaire through her business. So you'd think that he would go to his loving wife and ask her for the money. Either he did and she turned him down, or he didn't go to her because he couldn't confess what that money was for. So how does a guy get... Why had he been embezzling money? How did he get in debt? Well, you know the story. It's usually, what, Gambling? Drugs mistresses. And I'd say more likely in that order. People get themselves into, you know, money. Gambling is the most common way. And that of course brings in possibility of organized crime. That's possible. But then also notice we said if it's not that, it's drugs. And what was one of the things that Charlie was involved in dealing? Drugs? Mm -hmm. So is that where they came in? Is that where they could, but there's some kind of connection between those two. I don't think they were just sort of randomly chosen. That's sometimes connected to a theory that, that the other sort of criminal business that Charlie was into was uh, essentially as a hit squad. So, you know, you would be hired to carry out murders in, you know, undetained. You have no connection to these people, which is why you're sort of the perfect assassins, because even if you're caught, you can't be traced back to it. But I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, the the thing that I find in the Manson case, which is to me a very important point, which I think gets overlooked very often like the Lapayakas, is that one of the first killings that take place is when Gary Hinman, who made drugs that Manson sold to bikers and others was also a musician, but um, you know what had happened is Hinman had made a batch of uh, basically you know, meth okay gave it to Charlie Charlie sold it to the bikers. some of them got sick and it was a bad batch. A bunch of very pissed off bikers show up at the ranch and want their money back and Manson sends um, Bobby Beausoleil and a couple of the girls to go get the money. That was their job. they're going to go there get them $2,000 back from Hinman. And apparently Hinman didn't agree with that, argued there was nothing wrong with his drugs, uh, and that eventually led to him being murdered, which doesn't seem to have been the original intention. Now, the fact that everybody was supposedly completely whacked out of their minds in acid probably didn't help the situation, um, but which isn't to say that LSD makes you a murderer, but it probably doesn't help the situation
1: and they were under it, the influence it, it, of Charlie more than anything. You're bro. Give,
2: yeah, you're given the vague instructions that, you know, get this money out of him or else. So, you know, it began, it apparently began with sort of torturing him and then, you know, things got out of hand. So, you know, they, they try to cover this up. This is, this is where this sort of, you know, the little, the piggies and the panther marks, because the idea is that Hinman... Charlie had a thing he had an animus with various people who were connected to the Black Panthers. The mm-hmm. Black Panthers apparently also bought drugs from Gary Hinman. so I don't know let's just blame it on a bunch of black guys right So we'll leave signs that look like it's going to go to the Black Panthers uh, LA sheriffs and LAPD will pay all of their will pay attention to that and they won't go looking for us. So collecting the drug debt things go wrong guy gets murdered you try to create suspicion somewhere else. And then, you know, it's, uh, you know, Beausoleil, who, uh, you know, then gets in Hindman's car and drives it up the coast and falls asleep in it by the side of the road near San Luis Obispo with a murder weapon in the car. And it gets busted. So that looks bad. So what's the only thing that could possibly get him out of jail on that point? Well, to have somebody else committing se- the same sort of murders. So, one of the things that I have to say, you know, it's not the sexiest solution, but it makes sense to me is that, you know, Bobby was very popular. Mm-hmm. And you want to get the star
1: know, of all those Kenneth Anger films.
2: Yeah. And you never know what he, you know, occult themed films were, are you? Guy who once cast to play Lucifer mm-hmm. uh, in the stead of a dead child who was first, <laughs> that's another whole other story in itself. But uh, So we'll get Bobby out of jail because you never know what Bobby's going to talk about when he's in jail. You don't want underlings who have a lot of details to trade facing a murder charge and trying to get their way out of it. So you're going to get Bobby out of jail. So there the idea is that, you know, you whack these people at Cielo Drive and you kill and you leave the same sort of, you know, bloody signs that will then will connect. Well, whoever killed this guy must have killed them. And if, the, and if this guy was in custody at the time, well, then maybe his whole story is that I just stole the car and I didn't know the bloody knife was under the seat. And you know, I'm a car thief. I'm not a murderer. Begins to make sense. So that could have that little set of circumstances tends to explain the killings that year. Now, it doesn't explain why you would choose those particular places. So it's like the the house where Sharon Tate and her friends are are killed. You know, ten zero fifty Cielo Drive. It's not easy to find. You had to know where that house was. I mean, it's not even on the. You have to go winding through streets you would have to know exactly where that place was. And it turns out Charlie knew exactly where the place was because he and other family members had been there before. They'd probably swum in the pool. So that was, you know, then you get these theories that, well, you know, Terry Melcher, who was a record director, I mean, a, a record executive that Charlie felt had cheated him on a music deal. And so he killed everybody in the house to intimidate Terry Melcher. Well, if you're people with Terry Melcher, Why don't you just go after him? It's not like Manson didn't know where Melcher, you couldn't find him. He could easily have done that. So that doesn't really make, you know, this was all done to scare Terry Melcher. Now, then you've got, you know, one of the guys at Cielo Drive, um, Wojtek Farkowski, well-known as what? A drug dealer. And here again, drugs, Charlie, drugs. They Libyanka in debt probably for Drugs. Notice a certain trend here. That, drugs. Uh, drugs, you know, not too surprising. A bunch of people end up killed, and there are drugs involved. And the one thing that tends to link the murders and the perpetrators together are drugs from beginning to end. So that's not the mystery of the thing to me. Actually, why the killings took place. I um, You know, Sharon Tate is probably, you know, she's collateral damage. Okay, um, Which is probably one of the tragedies of the whole thing. But the, the mystery to me is why Manson takes the fall for all of this. Because keep in mind, there's no evidence that he ever killed anybody. He's supposed to be the mastermind of this order. He's supposed to have ordered these people to kill. And of course, what happens in the, in the progress of the case? First, Susan Atkins, you know, starts telling her cellmates, you know, just a little word of advice: if you ever find yourself, you know, in prison, never confide in your cellmates, because uh, you're just telling things to people who are will turn around to get to look. They want to get out of jail, and they don't. You're not your friend. So she talks about it, and first they think they have her, then eventually get Linda Kasabian to turn state's evidence. But that's, that's pretty much what this comes down to, is people who are accused, who are offered deals. First Atkins, then later Kasabian, are offered deals in return for their testimony that incriminates everybody else. And there's always a question with that. Someone got a deal, didn't suffer the same consequences as others because they agreed to incriminate other people who were involved. Uh, but the other thing is that, you know, Manson acts like a complete loon at the trial. I mean, try to imagine if he'd showed up and been the relatively articulate person he could be. Nobody ever said that, you know, Charlie wasn't didn't have the gift of gab. You know, if he hadn't acted like such a creep and gotten his girls to act like creeps, they were, you know, really if you look at the press of that, I mean this it wasn't everybody thought that he was guilty. This is a weirdo. You know, he's 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 America's nightmare hippie.
0: Yeah, the swastikas on the forehead and
2: shaving their heads and Yeah. I mean uh, they, they played their roles perfectly. If the whole thing was suggested, that these were simply a bunch of drug-crazed hippies mm-hmm. led by some sort of criminal mastermind of Charles Manson. Uh, and they all went down for that. And uh, to me, I, you know, why did, why did Manson just accept his fate?
1: Do you That's- think that might suggest some kind of higher allegiance or belief that he had a common cause with people who might have been handling him if they were using him to maybe, uh, you know, Gather yeah, intelligence on hollywood types or subversives that he might
2: yeah i mean my putting the pieces together my you know everybody has a theory my theory is that the reasons for the murders are pretty much the way i describe them you know, it's, it's, we use other murders to cover up other ones and i mean maybe there was a murder for hire element in it but essentially you're trying to cover your track tracks of one murder with others but that's where Charlie and his group, which had been used, again, they're, 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 there's an informant. In this so when, at what point does an informant lose their usefulness? One, but then they become too obvious. Which mm-hmm. first, you know? uh, he's mixed up in this. He and his followers are mixed up in it. There's no way to cover it up completely. So you don't want too many questions being asked about the whole thing. Nobody, nobody really wants to go through the whole thing know all of the Manson story. So we're going to do it this way. And this is where the helter skelter, you know, this is the It's, it's, it's to, to ignite a race war, which is, well, it's not even an original idea with Manson. And to me, there's, there's no particular, I mean, that, that was ever a big issue within the Manson family. That's, that's something which is largely created by Bugliosi's prosecution team to create a reason for the murders. Because if arguably you realize that the reason for the murders is that they all involve criminal drug activity, this is what links them together. Then you have this question of a larger conspiracy. And also the question is, why didn't people, why did people in authority keep letting this guy out of jail? Who, who knew what he was doing? Who was he working for? So let's shut this up pretty quickly. Crazy hippie. Svengali Rasputin mastermind, some crazy teenage girl runaways, that's the way we'll spin it. And, of course, to make that work, you have to get Charlie willing to accept his fate. And that would entail that whoever was his control, whether it was Reeve Whitson or someone else, basically went to him and said, look, this is the role you're going to play before. You're going to go down for this. And, you know, the threat at the time was that, uh, you know, Masson would get the death penalty.
1: Mm-hmm. But, of course, he That's didn't. a good motivation.
2: He didn't. Because the whole, you know, capital punishment in California was going to be ended. Who, who knew that that was likely to be the case at the time? So what happened to Charlie is that Charlie went back to prison, which he'd always was pretty much had been his home for much of his adult life anyway. He liked it. <laughs> That's yeah. where he felt most at home Yeah, it's, it's... yeah. I mean arguably You can see this deal being made This is what you're going to have to do You're going to have to take the fall for this This means that you'll probably spend the rest of your life in prison You won't die You'll just mm-hmm. go back to where you were before Back to the big university
1: And you have that then, mafia-like um, kind of ethos so. Right,
2: and, and you keep sort of Playing the crazy role You never tell what happened to this And as long as you do that, you'll stay alive yeah, he had that notoriety,
0: and all the people that would come and in interview him. I mean, I, I remember seeing this one thing. Like, there's an interview with Diane Sawyer. I think sometime in the '80s, and he's doing his whole act.
1: Yeah, he really had a re- and, renaissance in the '80s. But
0: but they caught yeah. him at the end of it saying something like, "Well, was that okay? Did I do all right? You
2: know, yeah. I mean, he's, like, he's always playing a role in this case. He's not as he's he's not stupid." And this is, there are a lot of smart people who can successfully play stupid. (laughs) It's one of the things you want to be able to do. Um, And again, I don't necessarily think he was a criminal master. He was useful to certain people for a period of time, and then he became a problem, and that problem had to be made to go away. And it could go away, it could go away by simply eliminating Charlie Manson from the face of the earth, or it could go away by tying up all of these little questions that have come up and, you know, nobody will, will come up with some bullshit explanation as to why this took place, so nobody will look at the real one, and then he'll do his assigned role of taking the fall for it.
1: it looks like he took it to the grave.
2: Yeah. So again, we will will never know. <laughs> But then you, you, were, you were never supposed to know these things. You know, it's, it's a, um, uh, I won't say a friend of mine, but someone that I knew who, who did indeed have a past legitimate background in, in intelligence. Now, I don't know about these people who claim they did. But it had, you know, and so I would, you know. If I'm not doing things like looking into murders or occultism, my real thing is chasing spies. If you want to know mm-hmm. how I've got me into all of this unhealthy stuff. And so, you know, I would, one of the things that he was an interesting person to talk to because he could provide a certain real life insight into these things. And, you know, and his statements was, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to research stuff that nobody's ever really supposed to know. I mean, you're trying to figure out the answers to things that people have for decades laid the basis that you will never find this out because it is simply not supposed to be known. Things are done that are intended to be, from the beginning, secret. That's why there are lifetime secrecy oaths. This is why these things go on. And he goes, yeah, and you're just, you know, he didn't say I was sort of beating my head uselessly against a brick wall, but he goes, your chances of ever getting the real answer in this type of thing is, is unlikely. Because it would even entail that somebody knows everything about it. And it brings up one of these little things of compartmentalization mm-hmm. of information. And one of the ways in, you, in, in a situation like this is that arguably even Manson didn't know what, everything that he was involved in. He knew what it was he was allowed to do and what he was told to do. But he didn't necessarily know why. And he didn't know who gave those orders to the person who transferred those those orders to him. Because he didn't need to know that. That wasn't part of it. You don't sit down and explain to you, this is the whole thing and here's how it works. No. You go to this point and you do these things with these people or to those people. That's the only thing you need to know and you'll be paid for that. You'll be paid for it and you'll stay alive. And there's only so much so compartmentalization breaks things down into groups which are often without knowing about it all being used for the same sort of purpose so take that back to something like son of sam and the zodiac so you know it comes if, if there if there's some sort of uh, for lack of a better term let's call it a satanic cult but i know the satanists will take exceptions to that and you know rightly so but you have to give so you've got some sort of cultist, some sort of murder cult. Do they even know exactly? I mean they're they're told what they're what they're doing. Okay, we're gonna go to the we're gonna pick these victims, we're gonna carry out these killings. This is what a this this is what the orders are, this is what we're supposed to do. But it doesn't mean that they understand the whole operation. They only understand their small part of it. In the way that sort of listening to berkowitz that's that's what i hear i hear a guy who's who sort of knows that there's something else going on but i don't think he knows the whole story doesn't know who everyone else is connected to because he was never told that it wasn't necessary for him to i think that's a very good point
0: um and i think a lot of the conspiracy stuff uh is people just trying to fill in those blanks Mm -hmm. and like it's kind of at the point where it's it's kind of getting out of control now but like you know that's that's where I think you know people the 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 satanic cult stuff and you know we've got the QAnon stuff that this is kind of going crazy it's just like but I mean you're right not everybody knows the the whole story people are compartmentalized
2: well we don't know the whole story about anything yeah (laughs) that's true It's, it's It's, it's all a bit of compartmentalized information
1: but the problem is when people can not accept uh, some mystery, you know, remaining and they have to fit it into some kind of master plan or they have to fill in those details, they can't deal with the mystery or ambiguity and
2: ambiguity and uncertainty. I mean, human yeah. we don't like ambiguity and uncertainty. So, you know, what, what human beings do is that if we don't, and, the, and then the press contributes to this. If we don't have the facts, we'll make up the story. And there's, mm-hmm. I think, a saying that goes through journalism is that you've got, you know, you've got the real, you you got the facts and you got a good story. Now, what are you going to go with? What's going to sell more papers? The few facts that you have that are just kind of tantalizing, but unsatisfying, or a story, right? Satanic cult, some sort of story that we can connect this to. It doesn't necessarily even have to be that logical. It just kind of has to explain things together. So it's, it's easy to come up with a story. I mean, look, we've, I think, uh, I'm not sure if it was before this, we were talking about movies, television, theatrics. Those are all stories that purport to be reality when, again, we know that they're not. When you're watching a movie, on some level, you know that you're watching a movie, that none of these things are real, but they're done right, and while you're in the moment, they are real. You'll react to them that way. There's an explosion on screen, you'll react to it, because that's just a kind of, it's evoked a kind of natural response, even though that's not real. I mean, not only was the explosion itself controlled under the actual circumstances, it's now just an image on a screen. It can't possibly do you any any harm as well. But the thing about yeah, you know, whether you know, you do this in a book and anything else in the stories we create, you've got you know it's, it's like a screenplay. All right, You read books on screenplays and they'll tell you I tell you how to put them together, where mm-hmm. you have your crisis. You know, always save something up for the next to the last episode. You know, and and. There's a formula which is used, but those formulas don't actually work in the real world. It's a, um, I sometimes think the thing that probably innately scares people more than anything else is the concept of chaos, of a completely uncontrolled situation in which anything can happen at any particular
1: time. And, yeah, I mean, look at uh, where the where we're at right now in the world, you know. It's like me and Adam joke, and I'm like, well, you better hope there is a, a an Illuminati <laughs> controlling things and keeping us from, from a nuclear war, you know?
2: That, that's the, the Illuminati is the only thing that could hold it together. Um, or people who think that they're you know, Illuminati. It's the... Again, the, the capacity of people to make things up and to believe things. So it's one of these things that in, in any of my series, I always try to make this difference between belief and knowing. You don't know a lot, really. Again, if you, if you take any event and you sort of strip it down to the basic facts, you know, those things that you know, this happened to this person in this place at that time without explaining why any of those things. but simply that those are the, you know, again, the Zodiac, any of these cases, are the same thing. You, know, you These people were killed at this particular place, in this particular manner. But you don't know how they can, what, what they're part of. Whether this is just an expression of sort of one person's sick mania, or this is something, the sick mania of a group, or what, or what their whole in intentions would be i don't know what are you going to do with all those slaves in the afterlife how many do you need why is this why is this why is this a big deal for you for you in this game where did you get that idea from and is this just something you're sort of making up to scare people or is it something that you really believe in So if we were only left with the facts of existence, we'd be in a perpetual state of confusion because we don't know why anything is happening. And so you you have to come up with an explanation for it, and you do that all the time, you know, in the same way that you came up with explanations as to why your homework wasn't done on time. From as late as the dog ate it to, I don't know, whatever story you want to come up with that kind of let you off the hook in this case. And that's the that's the kind of and, and you know, I'm saying this from the standpoint of, of a professional historian. And and one of the things that I would admit here, and I think any other honest historian would, is that you know, we really pretend to know a lot of things that we don't. Okay. We write histories which are sort of narrative descriptions of the path of whole nations and people in this way, and yet You're kind of just making this stuff up. I mean, you're creating a narrative. One of the things that's common now is the the idea of you want to control the narrative about something, narrative is just a nice word for story. You want to come up with a story that sounds believable, that suits your interests, and you want to have that story pushed in the media or any way that you can. It doesn't matter whether that has any kind of simplest reality or what that reality even is or that even necessarily you know all the parts as to why you're doing these things. Then, combine combine that with the universal and innate tendency of humans to lie, (laughs) which, let's face it, we've all done, for various reasons, most of them good, actually most of them entirely self-serving, and, um, you know, I, I think it was the, the most honest answer I ever got as to why, whether or not someone lied. It was a question I actually asked, asked them, you know, would, would you lie about it? And they go, yes, whenever it serves my interest better than the truth. Which is a frighteningly honest answer. So, you know, it's one of those basic things that I think cops know. People lie to get used to it. You assume that probably, if their mouth is moving, that they're <laughs> lying. Oh, right. they'll, they'll lie for good reasons. They'll, but the, the, most, the most troubling thing is when people lie for no particular reason at all, except to just mess with you. Okay. <laughs> and as a person, I will confess, who... You know, arguably likes to engage in teasing, okay, you know, um, that's what I call it, and uh, pulling people's legs just for the hell of it, yeah, I've I've done that, yes, I have completely lied to people and misled them just for my own amusement, generally loved ones and family, so there you go. (laughs) But see, yeah. you can get away with that. <laughs> you know, it's like family, the people you can borrow money from and they won't kill you to get it back. Okay, they'll still speak to you. Or you can, you can play tricks on them and bamboozle them. And they'll go along with that. Whereas total yeah. strangers, would, you know, their reactions would be, would be unpredictable. But you yeah, have this is the idea. I mean, people will just do it for no for reason, just for their own amusement. So when you put all of this together, the diversity of human beings and, their, you know, and, and, and their, their capacity to lie for one reason or another or for no reason at all, then what the hell's true? Well, in terms of absolute certainty about most things, yeah, you can't really be sure. You know, it's to to give another case from Crimes of the Century, which is far away from these, and another historical event is the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. Okay, Archduke Franz Ferdinand shot in Sarajevo, nineteen fourteen, started modern history because it be that those are the events that, for better, for worse, mostly worse, led to the First World War. And yet the most fascinating thing of that to me is the trial transcript of the captured assassins who had then put on trial by the Austro-Hungarian. And, of course, you know, they, they admit to being part of a, of a murderous conspiracy. Remember, this is all very clearly a very elaborately orchestrated conspiracy. But by different levels where they don't really know what they're doing. They're not even sure who's in charge of it. Yeah, you know, these are basically tubercular young men, little more than teenagers, who basically volunteer for a suicide mission. And, you know, the story you usually get is that, well, they did that because they were, you know, they were Serbian patriots and they wanted to do this. And yet, in their testimony, that doesn't seem to motivate them at all. They don't seem to give a damn about Serbian nationalism. They describe themselves as revolutionaries and anarchists. So they went to create, they went to foment a social revolution. What did that have to do with anything? And then strangest of all, the one thing that is almost continuously ignored in interpreting of this, is they start talking about Masonic agents and how this was all that Franz Ferdinand's murder was all plotted by Freemasons in France. And that they're all waiting for this guy, Mr. Kazimirovich, who was some sort of high representative Mason. And he was going to, he was going to give the final orders for the assassination to take place. I mean, even the Austro-Hungarian prosecutors didn't know what to do with that because it didn't fit their model. And they didn't really need it, you know. We know these guys killed Franz Ferdinand and once they've confessed to that, it's kind of, so we're not really going to investigate that any further. But what was that all about? Were they just making up BS? Or had someone told them that? or Or is there some whole other side to this assassination, one of the most critical turning points in history that we don't know about. Because the one thing that we can't be absolutely sure of to this day is who gave the original order for the killing. We can see the way in which those orders were passed down from one person to another, and it passed from one level of authority within one secret group to another one. Basically, leading down to the the young assassins, but in terms of where the idea originated and who was in control of the whole operation, they don't know. We know that Russian intelligence was connected to it at the top; that they were aware of the plans of the assassination head end, but then so was French intelligence as well. Even more interesting, that the actual decision. To carry out the assassination, the sort of you know, the, where the orders were given was in a meeting in France. Why there? Why was the meeting held in Toulouse? What was the purpose of that? Because it wasn't accidental. There was a reason why that meeting was held in that place at that time. So who set that meeting? Who set that kind of agenda? Um So even when you look at something, again, you you just assume it's been hashed over so many times that there couldn't be any possible detail or any sort of corner that hasn't been completely investigated. There's all sorts of them. We know something happened. We don't know why. the The further you dig, the more doubt there is. Well, you come across, you know, it's a lot of the stuff you you dig and you find more information. But finding more information doesn't necessarily bring clarity. Right. It can simply bring another level of confusion. You you think you've gotten it, it's settled, and now something else is introduced to it that isn't there. So you see why it's so much easier just to come up with a particular story, push Mm -hmm. that story, explains everything, and it goes away. Yeah. Instead of it being this... Thing that's always sitting there unanswered.
0: Uh, I guess it was the the, the the masons that
2: did it. I mean it.
0: It, it makes
2: well, maybe. <laughs> I mean again, is it's is that what the you know the assassins, Princep, and the others who were on trial are at the bottom of this conspiracy? They're they're the people who know the least. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
2: And they're the ones who, by the way, along with being given, you know, pistols or bombs that were supposed to be used, are also given cyanide capsules that they're supposed to take. Because one of the things is that they were never supposed to survive. That's commitment. Because they're all supposed to be dead.
0: The point, too, is that they were dying. See, that's one thing. I, I knew that Princip died of tuberculosis, but I yeah. didn't know that he already had
2: tuberculosis yeah he's i think there are three or four of them that i mean tuberculosis was fairly common right that period of time and basically if you had it you know 18 or 19 if you have fairly advanced tuberculosis you have at best a few years to live so that's one of the things that was actually used in recruiting them is that you're not going to live very long Mm -hmm. now you have a chance to do something which is very very important and you know I mean, for a, a young man who doesn't see much other prospect, that would be part of it. You have sort of dreams about being, you know, of doing something, whether it's creating some kind of uh, vast social socialist revolution in some way, you know. We can all be part of the revolution. We, we can serve our goal while apparently serving someone else's. We don't know who our masters are. We don't know who's giving us the orders, but they're, they're giving us they're giving me some some kind of purpose in this. So um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's one of those things. If you want to be looking for willing assassins or martyrs, start with the terminally ill, which is an incredibly cynical thing to think, but it's also completely practical. So, but they don't know what's going on. They never knew what was going on. So is this whole business about Masonic agents something that someone their higher ups told to them, so that they would repeat it, that would then lead things off in in that direction? You know, a, a, a yeah. complete false lead, a red herring, which is going to mm-hmm. lead years off. Of, or was it some sort of little hint at a a larger truth which was involved?
1: It's quite UK? the labyrinth.
2: Yeah, you don't know whether they were told the truth or whether they were told a lie. And it didn't matter because they accomplished their goal. The man that was supposed to die was killed. I mean, part of the story that later came out was that, uh, you know, after the assassination was supposed to take place, they were given a, a rally point they were supposed to return to because they were split up in different groups along the assassination. So had, had it gone as planned, had they thrown a bomb, killed Franz Ferdinand, they were all supposed to go back to the safe house that they'd been using before. Uh, if it looked like they were going to be caught, they were supposed to shoot themselves with their pistols, or they were supposed to take the cyanide capsules. Cyanide batch was bad, by the way, which is why the one guy who did it didn't actually die, although he wanted to. But, but once they reached the safe house, what was the plan for them? Were they all going to be safely spirited back somewhere and hidden away? They were all going to be murdered the instant they arrived. Because the plan by someone higher up was that at the end, there were going to be no witnesses. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way you could guarantee that anyone who had been part of this conspiracy, they're all dead. And then there would have been nothing to talk about. So things, you know, as, as a, things went wrong from the beginning. Assassination was botched. I mean, it only succeeded because of the most amazing set of seemingly happenstance situations. So there, there had been one bomb thrown and it had gone. Of course, that had, that had alerted the police. It didn't kill Franz Ferdinand. Wounded guys in the car behind him. At that point, you know, if you were the charge of the security of the motorcade, you'd cancel it, right? And Franz Ferdinand was a hard-headed guy, wanted to go ahead and make his public appearance. Uh, then he insisted that he had to go to the hospital where one of the officers who'd been wounded in the earlier attack was being held because he was going to go there and see mm-hmm. him. That meant that there was a change in the route of the motorcade. No one tra- told that to Franz Ferdinand's driver. And so that when the driver, when someone shots at him, you're going the wrong way, the driver slams on the brakes. That particular car had no reverse gears. It going. And, and so for a few seconds, the car stops. And at that particular moment, the, the assassins otherwise, assuming that the previous attempt had failed, they'd all scattered. You had Gavrilo Princip, the guy who fires the, who's just been milling around in the corner, doesn't know what's going on. And in the meantime gone into a sandwich shop and gotten something to eat. Okay, there was a story, by the way, that he ordered a ham sandwich, which apparently I've been told is not true. But it brings up an interesting point. He went in and he ordered something. Now, depending upon what he would have ordered, depended how long it would take for it to be prepared. And where the reason why that's important is that having gotten his food. Princip walks out of the delicatessen, and they're directly in front of him. at <laughs> that instant, the car stops while people are trying to figure out, the driver's trying to figure out where he's going to go. Those two things have to happen within a framework of seconds, or the whole thing doesn't work. Move it 10 seconds, move it five seconds one way or the other, and he would have walked out, and the car would have been moving away or would have been on up the hill, and none of those things would have happened
1: lighter or heavier on the on the mustard.
2: Right. Or if someone had told the driver ahead of time about the change in route or if the whole thing had been cancelled to begin with. I mean, there were so many little incremental things that meant that these two things had to coincide exactly at that moment. Which brings us to the other question. Is that just bad luck? Or is it fate? There's supposedly a Russian Proverb. I don't know whether it is or not, but the way that it goes is that half of everything that happens in life is luck and the other half is fate. But the thing is, you can never distinguish one from the other. So, was Franz Ferdinand going to die? Had arguably, if you want to bring the occult into this, had occult ceremonies, rituals, and sacrifices been performed, had the energies been gathered, and that the only role that the assassins were to play in this was to be pawns in in an action which had been magically determined. And it was. And that argument that Franz Ferdinand was doomed from the moment that he sat there, because the forces that had been set in motion were one way or the other going to result in his death. And it worked out exactly as planned. And Princip didn't even realize his part in it.
0: I, I've uh, heard that when Brant Ferdinand stops right in front of him, the car starts right in front of him, that all of a sudden he hears this voice in his head say, do it, do it, do it. And he pulls the gun and he shoots him. He shoots both him and uh, Sophie. Uh, I've I've heard this. I don't. I know, and it seems like I saw it in a documentary, but I don't know if that's true. There's I that don't know that I ever seen. Up.
2: I've ever heard. print I mean, it, it could be Prince of say that. The one thing that he did mention was that his gun was in his pocket. He had to put. We'll call it his sandwich. It wasn't He had to put <laughs> that that in his pocket and pull the gun out. <laughs> that was the action that they, they remembered. And then you know the guy's like five feet away, so he just and he's you know. He just blazes away with it. He didn't aim. It was apparently blind luck that he managed to hit both of them. Sorry about hitting Sophie. She was just in the way. You know, she tried to cover her husband. And so she was hit and died, transferred and died later. Not, Not immediately. They essentially bled out. But again, it's just one of those things that's just either sort of blind luck or it was... Reality twisted in the right way. Now that, by the way, sort of is is the one of the, one of the essential things in the in the occult course about in in trying to explain in very broad terms. And you know, there I'm just waiting for everything. People going, you didn't talk about this, you didn't talk about that, you didn't talk about other things. Well, there's only so much time in 24 episodes. Believe me. But one of the one of the things is that uh, what occultism is all about, what you know, what magic is all about, is intent. So it all depends. It's not the ritual; it's what the intent of the ritual is. It's it's what the, the what what reality do you want to think of it this way? People today talk about manifesting success. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. imagine what you want to achieve. Imagine and then think about it, that's magic. That's mm-hmm. exactly what that is. That is an attempt to focus energy, to manifest intent, to create a certain action in this case. So you could argue that a basic concept in what we call occultism is that coincidences and accidents don't exist. Now, there, There's no such thing as that. There's no accidents. Things don't just happen. Things always happen as a result of the energies that are flowing around and within them. Uh, one way I was to put it was put is that there there are no accidents, there are no coincidences. Everything that happens is an omen. That is, everything that happens is either contributing to something else, or is, an or is a kind of revelation of what will happen. Now, the thing about that, and it's one of these ways in which a, a kind of occult mindset can develop, is that if you, if you take that to heart and you believe that everything that happens around you, that nothing's accidental, then everything that happens has significance to it. You know, your watch falls off the nightstand for some reason. You dribble water in mm-hmm. yourself. Ev- everything means something. Everything is an omen for something else which, which is going to happen. Now, that can, that can lead to some pretty strange, it leads to a completely different way of dealing with day-to-day reality. So, it, it creates a, the import around every single action, no matter how seemingly trivial it might be, that it, it always is, is an omen for something else. That can take place, which is a completely different way of assuming that most of the things that happen to you are of no significance and don't really matter until they do.
0: That's probably a good place to stop those those words. <laughs> uh, Dr. Smith, do you want to join us for Patreon to talk a little bit about that Jay Shelby Downer stuff?
2: Yeah, I can. You know, I'll tell you what was interesting about it to me. Um, okay.
0: Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that, but I want to thank you for joining us. I mean, this has been really, has been really, really awesome. I, I didn't even get to talk to fairies, but you know, we're, we got Joshua Cutchie coming on next week. So okay. we'll, have plenty of yeah. we'll, we'll we'll talk about fairies with him, but believe it or not, uh, you do talk about fairies and in the uh, secrets do. of the occult. <laughs>
2: I, to be clear, I have, I've have never seen anything that I would identify as a fairy. Um, but I know reliable people who have, you know, I mean, yeah. it's just something <laughs> like UFOs. I've never seen one, but there are people who I'm pretty sure aren't crazy or delusional. And I'm also reasonably sure just aren't making this up for any particular reason. Who have? I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, but the whole sort of fairy... The term that I use for them is the others. Okay, yeah. So this is the sort of idea. Fairies, gin, whatever you name we can It was that we sort of share the world with some other sort of intelligent life form that we can only kind of vaguely interact with, but they're, they're there and they mess with us Yes, for yes. their yes. own particular reasons that we don't know.
0: So what is, the, what is next for you after the Secrets of the Occult? What are you working on? Uh, uh, well, I'm working
2: on a number. Of, I'm not working on anything currently more for Wondrium, uh, although that conversation will probably come up. And the most likely thing I might do for them again would be another installment of Crimes of the Century. More murders, I imagine. Although, you know, crimes. You know, more murder. Yeah. Well, there's so many of them. <laughs> um, so we'd probably do that another 12 there's actually and I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what they are but at one point I did actually come up okay here's a second group that we would that we would do and which might actually include the Black Dahlia murder although frankly that was the one that in the first group I just said no I that's just there's too much too much Black Dahlia stuff so let's just leave that one around but there, there are plenty of others um, there's an idea that I've been shopping around and I've now entered into that world of coming up with ideas for series or whatnot and trying to shop them around to people which is interesting because if lots of people are interested, the trick is to get people to come up with money Okay, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's, that's the catching point uh, what I call it is is flying saucers and secret agents and because, remember, I'm more than anything else, I tend to be interested in spies. And so one of the people that I became intrigued by for reasons that it would take a whole other show to explain. There, there's a guy in early ufology. Is that a thing? There's a guy in sort of the early stories of you know, UFOs, and the whole contacting movement, named George Hunt Williamson. You sort of look at, you know, in the 1950s, Hunt, George Hunt Williamson was a big figure on the saucer scene. And I became interested in him because I realized that I had briefly met him in Santa Barbara, California in the late 1970s when I was a grad student. I was just introduced to him, What he was no longer George Hunt Williamson, but was his royal highness, Michelle Brnevic, heir to the crown of Serbia, Yugoslavia, who knows, maybe the Byzantine Empire. In other words, he'd become this completely other person. And it was like, um, that guy? Was that guy? And sure enough, they were. So, you know, that has got kind of interesting. Well, suffice to say that, okay, I'm not a UFO guy. Okay, I've never seen one. No people have. I'm agnostic about everything which is involved in that. Which, you know, maybe they're aliens. I don't know. But what I do see, when I look, when I started, so I started looking at, you know, using my investigative techniques and Williamson and the rest, Here's what I saw. I saw a guy who had very unusual connections to the U.S. military, and who increasingly looked like he was somebody's agent for something.
0: Thanks so much for for coming on and uh, and doing this with us, Doctor Spence. I mean, this well, has been very excellent discussion.
2: Good. I'm you um, know, yeah. Agent. I mean, who else is interested in hearing about this stuff other than you and your listeners? So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, more people should be interested. I don't, that, that's for sure. Uh, where can people find your books? Uh, and, well, my books. Uh, and find the, t- the the uh, the episodes as well. So,
2: well, if you want to see anything great courses in Wondrium, the easiest thing to do is just to Google Wondrium, and that will take you to the site, and then you can search by my name, and it will uh, show you the the three courses or programs or whatever they're calling them now. Uh, uh, Real History of Secret Societies, Crimes of the Century, and then Secrets of the Occult. And uh, there are a couple of other Wondrium courses that I appear in along with other people. One of them is Secrets of Espionage. There you go. And the other one is True Crime, Decoding the Evidence, where we again rehash things like the Zodiac Killings, but from a more forensic angle in that case. Okay. And in terms of books, um, Amazon's a good place to start. The book that I will be forever best known for, I'm sure, is Secret Agent 666 Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult. Um, also, uh, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, um, The uh, Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, uh, which, is which is actually, you know, that's my favorite, which, which has more facts and figures in it. Thank Great you. Book.
0: I intended to do an interview with you on it, but we never got to it. But I but uh, I did I did enjoy I did enjoy the book. So
1: good. And so, you have a is it the introduction to Adam Gariley's upcoming book on James Shelby Downer? I have
2: uh, there was an article that I wrote. You know, one of the questions about James Shelby Downer in many people's minds was whether he ever existed, whether he was ever a guy or whether he was just some sort of literary creation. So, you know, the way you do is you start looking at public records. Literary creations generally don't show up in birth certificates and in censuses. And so this is where I was able to go through. And what I did was to take Downard's autobiography, his carnivals of life and death, and note the places and the people he mentioned. And then to go through public records and see to what degree what he said corresponded to what you could find. And. Almost everything he says about where he was and who he he knew, you can confirm. You know, the people he talked... doesn't mean that what he's saying about them is true, but it means that he was there and they were there at the same time. So he was a real person. uh, With a few variations, generally, where he says he was, he was. And so that has been continuously elaborated as as more more things came through. Um, the one of which, the, the one suspicion I'd long had about doubted is that there's a sort of gap, that he sort of disappeared after a period of time, and usually when something like that happens, it's because someone has been institutionalized in some sort of institution. So, prison, mental hospital. And I will say no more about it now other than to say that, yes, he does indeed, he spent at least two Different stints in two different mental institutions, one for a short period of time, one for a longer period of time.
1: That may not surprise uh, many people who are familiar with
2: his writings. Uh, that that you know that probably actually explains. that, Well, it it yeah. doesn't mean he was yeah. crazy. It doesn't define right. what crazy mm-hmm. he was, but he was he was there. He did you know end up in the in Hunter. Uh, involuntary commitment to mental facilities and uh, once in Arizona and then later on much longer in Tennessee
0: Of course it may have just been the
2: cryptocracy
1: trying to uh... and...
2: well it could be you know he was as he saw it, working on important ultrasonic devices that had military implications in terms of creating better rocket fuel and he even sent this to people in Washington he sent all of his research data to the Air Force. And the Air Force admitted that they took his papers and sent them to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where they were lost. So it's you know, I don't know, maybe they just threw the stuff in a wastebasket. But he's working on this, sends it to the Air Force. Air Force says, oh, thank you for all this stuff. Ah, you know, we lost it. I don't know what happened to that. Then about a year later, he's put into the... Arizona State Mental Hospital, from which he attempts to escape, unsuccessfully. Yeah. So anyway, an expanded, the most complete version of that is called "The Limbo of Lost Memories," and that will be, I think, the afterward in the book, which is okay. But there, if you look around, I think of the web there's an earlier version of that. There are a couple of them floating around out there. It doesn't have all the newer stuff in it for what
1: this one. Is. I would definitely recommend that, and we, we can't wait for that as well.
0: Excellent. Looking forward to it. All right, guys, that's it. Dr. Uh, we'll Spitz, hold on a line for us just for a bit. We're going to close out the show, but uh, thanks, everybody. We did a Patreon segment with uh, Dr. Spitz and some selective editing about George Hunt Williamson. And, uh, sir, sure if y'all can tell everybody where you can find a Patreon,
1: you can find that at slash conspiranormal, where you can join one of our many occult orders give you access to our proprietary theosophical soup of um secret episodes so you check that out at patreon.com slash conspiranormal
0: all right guys i want to thank you guys for listening thanks Spencer, for coming on thank you and it's great to be back